Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody this evening. Welcome to our Bible study as we continue going through the divided kingdom. Everybody's had a good day today, certainly had a beautiful day, and it's a great day to get together and study God's Word this evening, so great to be together. Um, we're entering into a period of the divided kingdom, about to get to a part that's a little bit better known than some things we've looked at so far, the last couple of weeks anyway. But uh, before we get to Elijah and Elisha in the next couple of lessons, we're going to set that up in today's lesson, tonight's lesson, and uh, look at several kings in Israel in the north and uh, one in the south as we uh, continue in this 17 periods of Bible history in the midst of the divided kingdom, uh, uh, sandwiched in between uh, the United Kingdom time and uh, Judah being alone in the captivity. So, in this lesson, we'll look at a succession of kings in the north, uh, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and Ahab in order. And we'll notice the flow of their rise and fall uh, all along. And then in the south, we'll see uh, Asa give way to Jehoshaphat and uh, look at the beginning of his reign as well. So that's the plan for tonight, and uh, we'll just get right to it. Starting... Uh, with sort of an interesting contrast, God sends uh, prophets both to the king of the northern kingdom and the king of the southern kingdom with um, some similar but in, in some way, other ways very diverse messages. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 16 is where we'll start tonight. The word of the Lord came to Jehu the son of Hanani against Baasha saying, now, Bash is the king of the north. Jehu's the son of another prophet that we'll get to in a minute. His father's going to be prophesying in the southern kingdom. <clears throat> so he comes and he prophesies, speaking for God in verse 2, talking to Basha, inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. Surely I will take away the posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So just as God had punished Jeroboam and his whole household and his, all of his posterity for his wickedness, so he's going to do to Basha. That's the announcement. It says in, in this very similar way, almost the exact words that were prophesied about the house of Jeroboam in verse 4, the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Basha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. In other words, nobody's going to get a respectable burial. Same thing with the house of Jeroboam that was prophesied and came to pass. So the message of uh, Jehu is one of rebuke. And the point is that God had been the one to exalt Basha and give him the kingdom, really for no particular reason other than to replace uh, you know, the, the king before him. Uh, and yet, although Basha had ended, brought it into Jeroboam's house, now his own house is going to suffer the same fate uh, with those, again, killed but not having proper burial. So that's the, that's the message to the king of the north as we begin uh, this lesson. Basha will, will die, uh, and it says he rested with his fathers and was buried in Terzah. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. Well, in the southern kingdom, Hanani, who is apparently Jehu's father, goes to Asa. And Asa is a king we've been looking at now for 
uh, class period and a half. He's been a, a very good king by and large, but makes some errors toward the end of his reign, sadly. Uh, so Hanani comes to him, and we'll pick up um, this reading in Second Chronicles chapter 16. You might remember, as we've talked about several times already, that for the most part, uh, the kings, first kings, follows the action in the northern kingdom, and Second Chronicles will be looking at the action in the southern kingdom. So we're in Second Chronicles chapter 16, and uh, starting in verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. You might remember that um, Basha, uh, or rather Asa, instead of calling on the Lord to help him against Basha, made a treaty with uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, uh, to you know, work against the Israelites to the north and thus drove Basha back. The question to Asa basically is, why did you do this when you had been successful when you trusted in God before? And it comes in verse 8. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim uh, not, not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. God had saved Israel and Asa uh, in His early reign from the Ethiopians in, in a mighty way, in a powerful way. Uh, and, and then Hananiah the prophet explains in verse 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. If you'll be loyal to God, God is everywhere. He's powerful. If you'll be loyal to God, God will be with you. He'll be your strong arm. He'll be your dread defender. Uh, and I think that's still true in a lot of ways, of course, today. So Hanani tells them in the end of verse 9, in this you have done foolishly, Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Because he failed to trust God uh, in this matter in dealing with Basha uh, and relied on the king of, of Syria instead, uh, the Lord is displeased with him. And now at the end of his reign, he's going to have trouble after having many years of peace, at least ten consecutive years of peace in the southern kingdom, and more than that, apparently. Uh, and, and as is typical, um, and frankly... Uh, as someone who's had to deliver a few unpleasant messages to people a few times in my life, I can relate to what Hannah and I is about to go through. I've never been, uh, you know, put in a dungeon for it, but here's what happens. Asa was very angry with the seer, right? You kill the messenger. He doesn't kill him, but <laughs> shoot, shoot the messenger because you don't like the message. It's a message from God. Uh, Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him because of this, and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. In other words, he just has a fit, gets mad at everybody but himself, who's the one he should be mad at, and uh, takes it out on the one who delivered the message and the people as a whole. So uh, uh, an unflattering uh, sequence in the life of Asa, uh, and it gets even more so as we get here toward the end. Uh, wars replace peace, and Asa's angry reaction uh, does a discredit to him for sure, for sure. Well, that leads us on <clears throat> then as we, we go back and we look at the next king in Israel. Basha, as we mentioned, dies and is properly buried at Terza, 
uh, going back to 1 Kings now in 16, uh, Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 7 says, Also the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he, he killed him. So in the 26th year then of Asa in the south, and Elah the son of Basha becomes king over Israel, and he reigns in Terzah for two years. Um, his servant and military commander is a man by the name of Zimri, and Zimri conspires against him, kills him while he is drinking himself drunk, the text tells us. Um, I might say something about this at the end of the lesson, but drinking is never a great idea. Drinking yourself drunk is always a bad idea. And for a leader in any position, whether you're talking about a leader of God's people, a military leader, a political leader, a leader in a business, if you're, if you're drinking your, yourself drunk, you're doing your organization, your people, a disservice, to say the least. And yourself a disservice too, obviously. Uh, I know it's, it's popular in a lot of circles. That, that's, that's how people act. That's what people do. It, it's not good for you. It's not good for whatever your uh, business is, whatever your leadership role is. It's just an awful thing. And uh, as a result of his actions here, of course, Elah is vulnerable. And as a result of that, is going to come to an end because of it. So picking up the reading, uh, Verse 9, his servant Zimri, commander of his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terza drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of, the house of, Tur of his house in Terza. Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. So the same year uh, now, and he, he reigns in his place. And it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, so he, he had just you know, taken over, gets set down on the throne good, that he killed all the household of Basha, and he did not leave one male, neither of his relatives nor his friends. So everybody associated with Basha, the, the, the king before uh, Eli, he takes all of them out. So the entire posterity, just as was the case with Jeroboam, the entire posterity of, of, of Basha and everyone connected with him is, uh, is taken out, just as uh, Jehu the prophet had said would happen. And that completes the prophecy. Zimri destroyed the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. Everything God says, as we've said in the last lesson, if God says it in his word, if it's a prophetic word of scripture, it's going to come true. It has to come true. God cannot lie. And uh, this was done for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah. So getting all of them together, which they'd sin and provoking the Lord to anger with their idols. So God is in control. Evil kings are being dealt with, uh, raised up and dealt with again as they choose to stand against God rather than for God. What happens next is that Omri then becomes uh, king in Israel, and he's going to reign 12 years. So we pick up the reading uh, in 15. Yes, sorry. Yeah. 
even though God raised him up to do that. So just because God raises up kings to do his will in, say, taking vengeance on an evil king, doesn't mean that king is justified. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, of course. Nebuchadnezzar, probably the most famous of, ex of examples. But that's a, that's a great point, and you see it right here. God is raising up uh, one man after another to take out these evil kings in the northern kingdom, and yet that doesn't get them uh, freed of their moral responsibility. And if they do wrong, uh, even in you know, punishing somebody uh, as God's instrument, still uh, they're, they're called to judgment by God for that. And that's a good point. Uh, you know, God, God is in control. God is the one who decides the, the path of nations. And God is the one who avenges iniquity. Uh, so in all of this, you see, somebody might say, well, well, God's not fair in doing that. What do you mean? What are you talking about? He's, he's, he's got all of this in his hands. He's, he's perfectly, legitimately just in everything that he's doing here. Um, and that's, that's because he's God. So uh, appreciate the point, Brent, and appreciate you stopping me and bringing that out. I want to talk about Omri then for a while. Uh, again, picking up in chapter 16 and verse 15. The 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Terza for seven days, and the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which we've read about before. That's where uh, Bashel was earlier, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people were camped, heard it, and said, heard about Zimri, uh, you know, in the coup, and they said Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Omri the commander of the army king over Israel, that day in the camp. So right there, the military commander. And I just want to suggest to you that if you're ever going to, you know, uh, enact a coup and take over a government, if you're, that's ever like on your calendar or something you're planning to do, just make sure you have the military on your side before you do that because it's going to be a bad move if you don't have the military on your side before you do that. So Zimri hadn't, apparently hadn't even checked, you know, with the commander of the forces about whether or not this was going to be a good thing or not. Uh, and, and so you know, here the commander of his armies out besieging uh, Gibbethon, and now the people have Omri elevated to be the king. So then Omri and all Israel with him, in verse 17, went from Gibbethon and they besieged Terza, back to besieging uh, the, the capital city. Zimri sees that the city is taken, which probably didn't take long. I don't think Terza was very well fortified. Uh, but in any case, it, they just come against it. They take the city very quickly, Omri and the forces of Israel. Zimri sees that the gig is up, so to speak. He goes into the palace and burns it down on top of him and kills himself. Uh, so very short seven-day period of glory for Zimri, and then that was it uh, for him. This is God's judgment upon him for his wickedness. Uh, in verse 18, he dies in, in the fire that he himself set. And all of this came to happen, verse 19, because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. So he apparently had all this long time been an idolater like the people in Jeroboam's day were and followed that. But also, he, 
you know, committed sins in doing what he did in the coup. Uh, so all of this is uh, avenged uh, by God in this case. Zimri, the treason that he committed, all of that is recorded here and also it mentions in verse 20 in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. This is God's judgment upon him. And so then there's this period of about four years. If you go and look at uh, verse 15, which is in the 27th year of Asa, and then it's not till in verse 23, the 31st year of Asa, that Omri becomes the sole king of the north. So for about a four-year period, you have this political faction in the north with one group following Omri and the other group following a man by the name of Tibni. Uh, and at some point, after about four years, apparently, Timni dies. Omri gets the upper hand and gets c- control of the entire northern kingdom. Uh, so Omri uh, prevails and is uh, set up as now the undisputed king and the unifying king of the northern kingdom. Uh, Omri, uh, I lost my screen again for some reason. I don't know what happened there. Did I do that? I guess not. Oh, good. All right. So, just a, a little bit of geography here for us. Uh, Omri attacks Zimri, so he's down here at Gibbethon. And uh, when Zimri takes over up here in Terza, and uh, Omri hightails it up there, which would be a couple of days' journey probably with the army, but he's able to take over the city within seven days. And then uh, takes out, or really, uh, Zimri takes himself out, and then we're going to see that Omri is going to move the capital from uh, Terza to Samaria. Uh, let me back up a little bit and look at this screen here and go over that in words, uh, starting in chapter 16 and verse 24. Uh, so Omri is going to reign for 12 years total, six years in Terza, and then he's going to reign six years in Samaria. And here's how Samaria gets to be the capital of the northern kingdom, or comes to be, I should say. It says in verse 24 that he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of that city which he built Samaria after the name Shemer, owner of the hill. So in Hebrew, the, the, the words Shemer and Samaria are very close together phonetically. And he is naming the city of Samaria. That's where it gets its name from Shemer, who he bought the hill from. And so from then, thenceforth, for uh, all the way to now, I guess, the, this place is called Samaria as a result of the fact that he bought this from a guy named Shemer. Um, he... Um, Omri, it says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him, which is quite an indictment because we've had some really bad kings. That's verse 25. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the sin by which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger with the idols. He dies, and then Ahab is going to become king in his place. Verse 28, Omri rested with his fathers, was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. So then we, I looked at this uh, geography already with you here. Uh, Omri moves the capital from Terza to Samaria during his 12-year reign, halfway through it, six years into it. 
moves it to Samaria, and buys this hill, the hill of Samaria, which uh, he begins to build as a capital. Uh, Samaria, unlike uh, Shechem and Terza, uh, is highly defensible because it's such high ground. Uh, it was fortified in the days of Omri and Ahab. There were idol temples that were built there and also a palace that was built there that's usually attributed to Ahab. Archaeologists have uncovered that. Uh, it's from this time period uh, in, the, in the 9th century B.C., and almost certainly the palace of, of Ahab. There have been a number of artifacts found in that area that go along with how Ahab's palace is described, for instance, as a palace of ivory. There have been ivory figurines like that you see in the inset there. Those are little two-inch lions that were found uh, in the dig there in Samaria. So this is an uh, interesting site. Obviously, a lot of Bible history is going to occur here in Samaria from here thenceforth, really, all the way into the New Testament. And uh, it's an air, a place that was occupied not just then, but uh, throughout much of the Old Testament. It was rebuilt by Herod, occupied in the time of the Romans. Later on, also became a capital, a regional capital in the time of the Byzantine Empire. So all the way up to 600 A.D. or so, this is a place that was very active, uh, off and on, but very active for much of that time. So, yes? It's not so much a tell. It looks like one. That's a good question. You know, a tell is typically where layers of dirt have covered uh, layers of civilization. Most of that is just hill. Um, my perception of it is there is sort of a tell part to it where you, you dig down and you see the lower layers up on top of it. But most of it is, just, is actually just hill, as it was uh, ancient times. We were able to visit there, and I got... Um, uh, to walk around a good bit uh, on top and down around the side. It's, uh, it's as I said, you, you could see why it would be picked to the, as a capital and as a defensive area. It could be easily besieged, and it was multiple times. You could surround it with an army pretty easily, but it would be hard to get into it, and especially because of the higher ground. All right, so that's what we're looking at geographically. I think that's an interesting part of this. And, and we... The, the big thing is we've gotten to Ahab. Ahab becomes king. He's going to reign for uh, 22 years, but he was so evil it seems like a lot longer. You know, when things are bad and really bad, uh, it seems like time just passes even more slowly. So we'll look at uh, <clears throat> some initial things about Ahab before we get in uh, in the next couple of lessons to other things that go on during his reign. He becomes king and he reigns, as I said, for 22 years. We're in chapter 16 and verse 29 now. He becomes king in the 38th year of Asa, still to the south. Asa is still reigning. Um, and the text says, as if continuing in Jeroboam's sins were a trivial thing, uh, Ahab advances wickedness to new heights or lows, however you want to put it, um, far beyond anything that had been done to this point. Uh, verses 31 through 34 describe all of that. For one thing, he marries Jezebel, who is a pagan princess from Phoenicia. Her father was Ethbaal, the king of Sidon. That's mentioned in chapter 16 and verse 31. Uh, he also sets up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So he builds a special temple 
for Baal in Samaria, in the capital city, and sets up an idol there. Uh, he made a, a, a wooden image. It says in verse 33, that would be an Asherah, a Canaanite uh, goddess uh, to worship as well. Uh, and so not only committing evil, but pushing Israel as a whole into deeper and deeper paganism and, and more and more uh, violating God's will and insulting God. Uh, in his reign, he provokes the Lord to anger more than all of his predecessors. And the mood is such that I think there's a, a, a little interesting tidbit at the end of this in verse 34, if you'd like to look at that in your Bibles, 1, Corinthians 6, 1 Kings 16 and verse 34. In his days, that is in the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Now, you might remember over 500 years before this that it was said that whoever builds Jericho is going to be cursed. Well, if you had known that prophecy and had any respect for it, the last thing you would do is build Jericho. If Hiel knew that prophecy, he didn't have any respect for it. He may not have known it. But in any case, there's no respect for the prophetic word of God. Either way you look at that. God's, God's prophetic word is not respected. So Hiel rebuilds Jericho. He laid its foundations with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So this was prophesied uh, long ago, Joshua 6 and verse 26. And it comes to pass, uh, as I said, over 530 years or so later, just exactly as had been prophesied. Jericho, of course, still exists today, and there are several layers of it over the centuries. It's the oldest, perhaps, city in the entire world. But uh, it was rebuilt at a really high cost uh, that you see here. Um, so you have this, this culture that erodes uh, respect for God's prophetic word. We're going to go back over um, and look at what's going on with Asa before we quit tonight. In Asa's 39th year, uh, back over in 2 Chronicles, we're in 16 and verse 12 of 2 Chronicles now. In his 39th year, this is after he becomes angry with Hanani, puts him in prison, rejects Hanani's rebuke. After he had uh, made the treaty with Ben-Hadad of Syria. The text tells us in verse 12, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. He did not seek the Lord but turned to the physicians. I don't, we don't know what the malady in his feet would have been. You know, we know lots of malady in the feet today. Uh, people have neuropathy, people get... Um, gout, people get gangrene and all sorts of different kinds of things. Some of those diseases can be pretty serious. Uh, whatever it was, it was a, apparently a, a wasting kind of disease. It took uh, some bit of time for him to die from it, uh, but nonetheless it was quite serious. And we've already mentioned that as a young man, uh, he'd relied on God when the Ethiopians came up against him, but we don't see this in his latter years. And it seems to me that if we're wise, the older we get, the more and more we rely on God. Uh, personally, I, I don't see any other option. 
Uh, I don't know why somebody who'd had such great help from God in his youth would fail to rely on him in his age, as Asa, as Asa did. But um, that's what he did. He, uh, he, he dies in this text. It says he died in his 41st year, so for two long years he had this problem with his feet. And they buried him in his tomb, which he made for himself in the city of David. They laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients prepared, a mixture of ointments, and they made a very great burning for him. There's a question among scholars if they burned his body, which many of pagans did, uh, burned the bodies of the kings, or if the burning refers to the burning of the spices and all of that. And I don't know for sure which is being referred to. But in any case, it was a big uh, thing when he passed away. All right. Jehoshaphat, uh, his son, then comes to rule. And Jehoshaphat reigning in his place uh, is one of the the very best kings of the southern kingdom. Asa Asa was a good king. Uh, Jehoshaphat is truly a great king spiritually. Uh, He makes a mistake or two along the way as well, but we truly appreciate it. He's going to reign for 25 years, as we said, and uh, he is this very good king. He's going to strengthen the kingdom and fortify Judah militarily. Um, He strengthened himself against Israel, it says in chapter 17 and verse 1. He placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah, set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa his father had taken. So Judah uh, Judah is still in control of a few cities over the boundary, so to speak, uh, up in the north. They're still in control of a few of those. And those are being fortified and uh, have uh, troops stationed there. So uh, Jehoshaphat is in a really strong place and strengthened himself more and more. But besides all of that, and the main thing about him is that he sought the Lord and he walked in his commandments. Uh, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments according to the acts of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah gave him presents. Uh, and he had riches and honor and abundance. So everybody's loving him, uh, showering uh, gifts upon him, appreciating him as their king. In the third year, he sent leaders out, uh, Minhalel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, Micaiah, several others to teach in the cities of Judah. That's mentioned in verse 7. He also sent out Levites, and those are, are named in verse 8. Uh, as well as Elishama and Jehoram, the priests. They taught in Judah the, and, and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. Does anybody remember anywhere in the history of Israel to this point where something like this was done? I do not. Where the king, who's supposed to have the book of the law with him all of the time, actually sends out Uh, priests and Levites and leaders of the people to teach God's word in the towns and cities. Yeah, when they first entered the land, it was red. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of specially unique, isn't it? There may be, I don't remember, any other time when something like this, exactly like this was done. Uh, It reminds you a little bit of uh, what happened when Ezra and Nehemiah came back after the captivity. Uh, instructing the people in all the law and all of that. 
but th this is a, a, a really special effort. And, and really, don't you think that so many of the problems in both Israel and Judah during the divided kingdom period are caused by wholesale ignorance of God's law? I mean, people either, either they didn't know or they didn't care. It might have been both. But they didn't seem to know even most of the time what God expected of them. And uh, that's a problem and would be a problem for any people. But you appreciate Jehoshaphat. Uh, he delights in the ways of the Lord. He removes the high places. Uh, and that had been done some under Asa um, and uh, a little bit at another time. But here, I think he gets after that pretty zealously. Um, so as a result of all of that, dread of the Lord falls on all the surrounding kingdoms. They realize Jehovah God is with Jehoshaphat, and uh, he's growing in power, he's growing in might. And a lot of that is described in verses 11 through 19. I'm not going to take the time to read all of that, but lots of numbers of troops and uh, various things that uh, were put in place to solidify the power and might of Jehoshaphat. I think there are a couple of lessons uh, unique to this story or to what we've looked at in the narrative tonight that I'd like to focus on before we quit. As I mentioned earlier in, in brief, from Elah, we learned the oft- taught Bible truth that alcohol will not help a leader in any way. Uh, not, not any leader will be benefited from uh, drinking alcohol. And the Bible over and over specifies this. Besides all of the general warnings against alcohol to all God's people, you have particularly for king and prophet and priest these kinds of warnings and prohibitions. You have in Proverbs chapter 31, for instance, in verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. You've you got to have a clear head when you're making judgments on behalf of others. If you're a leader of any kind, you've got to have a clear head. You need to know God's law, be able to apply it, and the fact is that alcohol muddies your thinking anything else you want to say about it, but it muddies your thinking and you can't have that clear head and you can't make those thoughtful decisions that you need to make. And I don't care if you're a, a leader of, of a nation or a leader of your home, which every man is, that muddles your thinking. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 28, God condemns the people of Isaiah's day who had erred through wine, who through intoxicating drink were out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. All of that uh, because of uh, alcohol. And then the prohibition in Ezekiel 44 and verse 21. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Priests were not to drink wine at all when they went to do their work. That's just a, a, a principle that's so clear. Uh, and, and we need not to compromise it. The second thing, uh, and again, we've sort of mentioned this as well, but just to, just to harp on it for a minute, uh, without respect for God and his laws, 
you know, successive rulers are going to go down the same evil path and probably become progressively worse. So in, in the north, there was no respect for God and his laws. There was invention of their own religion, uh, jettisoning you know, all of God's laws and, and the people who knew it and the people who would have uh, helped Israel perform it. All of them are kicked out, uh, sent down to the south. And, and so what do you expect when that happens, when you've got king after king with no respect? Well, it gets worse and worse. It's not going to get better. And the same is true of any nation. You have people who don't respect God generation after generation leading your nation. What do you think is going to happen in the nation? It can't get better. It's not going to get better. Not if, not if that goes on. And so you have 1 Kings 16, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, did worse than all that were before him, and after him comes Ahab, the son of Omri, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord more, more than all were before him. And so down the, down the tubes we go, morally speaking. And that's exactly what's happening. All right, questions or other thoughts, uh, comments on anything anybody wants to say? Yeah, Doug? Yeah, it is the nature of things that however far parents will go in their compromises and they'll say, okay, here's where I'm going to stop. The next generation will take those compromises and, and go over that line as well. And it just keeps on degrading uh, on down. That's, that, we see that all the time. All right, good thoughts. Looking forward to talking about Elijah. Uh, Sunday morning, Lord willing, in the class.